0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 12th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme... China's President Xi gets a warm welcome in Hanoi, hot on the heels of his U.S. counterpart, Joe Biden. Also ahead. We
1: have a text and we need to agree on the text. The time for discussion is coming to an end.
0: Tensions rise at the United Nations Climate Summit in Dubai as oil-rich nations resist calls for tougher action on climate change. And which major cities are best prepared for the latest developments in mobility? We'll be finding out later. All that ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. Chinese President Xi Jinping has landed in Vietnam for two days of meetings with top officials. His arrival makes the Southeast Asian country the only one that both the leaders of China and the US have visited in 2023. Washington and Beijing are jostling for influence there as it's an important regional manufacturing centre. During a visit by President Joe Biden to the country in September, Hanoi and Washington upgraded their relationship to the highest level. Well, for more on this now, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Neil Thomas, fellow for Chinese politics at the Asia Society's Centre for China analysis, who can tell us more. Um, Neil, good afternoon. Tell me, what what does uh, Beijing want from this visit, in your estimation? Hi, Tom.
2: Thanks for having me. Uh, Beijing wants to remind Vietnam of their quote, traditional friendship, as she uh, mentioned in an article just a couple of months ago in Chinese state media. Uh, Vietnam, as you said, has been uh, a huge beneficiary of Uh, tensions uh, between the U.S. and China as you know hundreds of billions of dollars of manufacturing has been uh, moved or been seeking to move from China and the political risk that's developed around there especially in the tech sector with U.S. sanctions to Vietnam as well as other countries like like India and Mexico Uh, but Vietnam had Joe Biden visiting just three months ago and a quite unprecedented upgrading of bilateral ties there so she wants to uh, shore up his own influence in the region and try to ensure that Vietnam doesn't move too far uh, to the American uh, camp.
0: Well, I suppose that's the, the nub here, isn't it? Uh, the Chinese leadership certainly concerned about that relationship with the US. Um, but I wonder, as you see, I mean, are those concerns valid? And, and how do you think they may manifest themselves? Well, Should we see, I don't know, bilateral agreements being signed, for example, during uh, Xi's trip?
2: Yes, so Xi Jinping has been in Vietnam today. Uh, We're just starting to get some of the readouts and the results from that meeting. And uh, the official tally is 37 agreements. um, But the most significant ones uh, relate to things like uh, rail links. Uh, So kind of uh, an example of Xi's Belt and Road Initiative um, uh, connecting more of the kind of trading hubs in southern China with Vietnam. And there's also links there to other countries in Southeast Asia. So Vietnam also, you know, wants to um, get amongst this and, you know, use China's money, That it's still, you know, um, willing to to spend on especially kind of more local, closer uh, infrastructure links that are going to have a more permanent effect on, you know, uh, increasing regional trade and kind of binding uh, the regional economy to China. There's also things like uh, joint maritime patrols, which are interesting considering the uh, main source of tension in China-Vietnam relations is the South China Sea and the competing and clashing claims the two countries have to that. Uh, but in terms of the uh, the optics and the outcomes, um, I don't think that this particular trip measures up to Joe Biden's visit to Vietnam three months ago, when there was a, a real, a huge raft of uh, strategic and semiconductor deals that were signed. So. There's certain kind of uh, you know, limits on what's possible for the economic relationship. But the other thing to remember with Vietnam is that it's, it's you know, also one of the world's few communist uh, you know, one-party regimes like China. There's a lot of ideological, political, you know, propaganda, organizational exchanges that happen behind the scenes between China and Vietnam that really don't get a lot of attention. But there is uh, quite a close kind of party-to-party relationship as both uh, governments have an interest in uh, regime uh, survival in a world that is, in some ways, fairly hostile to the you know the values and the political systems that they have.
0: Well, that's a very good point, Neil. Because I was going to ask you whether there's any prospects of Hanoi, you know, it, to some respect, almost benefiting from broad attentions between. Beijing and Washington. But do you think because of that that it's sort of quite unique relationship that you've just described there, it, it's less likely that we might see Hanoi sort of trying to play the, the two superpowers off against one another? We, we know there are businesses, of course, that have moved money from China into Vietnam. I mean, is it an opportunity, or do you think that the situation you just described supersedes that opportunity?
2: I think it's an opportunity for Vietnam uh, because Vietnam does have compelling interests for deepening ties with both China and the United States. And it's not in its interest to go fully into one camp or the other. So that's gonna be the challenge for Vietnam and many other countries in the region going forward, particularly as the strategic competition between the United States and China continues to gradually intensify. And Vietnam wants the extra trade and the uh, security assistance in the South China Sea from. The United States and its allies also upgraded ties with Japan in recent months, for example, uh, Australia-Vietnam ties are uh, closer than they've perhaps ever been. Um, but it also wants that political connection and a, a similar but different economic relationship with China. So at the moment, Vietnam's doing a pretty good job of balancing both. I mean, both of these, you know, the world's top two most powerful leaders have visited the country this year. Um, the challenge will be... Whether they can continue that into the future as things get more difficult.
0: Neil, you mentioned a couple of times tensions in the South China Sea. It's something that we look at so often on Monocle Radio from all different kinds of of angles and involving all the different stakeholders. Just give us a sense, perhaps finally, of how... How's that broached? Because as you said, sort of maritime tensions between Vietnam and China have, have flared up, uh, not infrequently. Um, and yeah, I suppose it's an area where they can at least outwardly present more of a unified front. What should we expect to see, if anything, moving on that front?
2: And It'll be interesting to see what exactly the substance of these joint maritime patrols that sort have of just been announced today is, like how... Uh, deep how real is any kind of cooperation between China and Vietnam and, and perhaps their Coast Guards or navies in the South China Sea I don't expect this is uh, a major breakthrough that would be quite an uh, uh, unusual and um, an interesting development if that were to happen but I think that you know there's been negotiations around say a code of conduct in the South China Sea for something like 20 years now between, China, Vietnam, and the other ASEAN countries in Southeast Asia. So there is you know, diplomatic space to to mention and, and raise concerns about these issues. Uh, but uh, it's one of those uh, issues where I, I don't think there's been much progress towards uh, any kind of more permanent resolution. And uh, you know, we've seen what China's doing right now towards the Philippines in the, the eastern part of the uh, South China Sea. And if there was any kind of... Uh, diplomatic deterioration in China-Vietnam ties, I'd expect China to be putting pressure on the, the kind of Paracel and Spratly Islands kind of that are kind of closer to Vietnam uh, in that area. Uh, we're not seeing that at the moment, but if there's an opportunity to make strategic gains there, um, I'm sure China would, would take it and that would you know, contribute to a, uh, a backflip in China-Vietnam relations.
0: A Terrific insights, Neil. Thanks for your time uh, this morning. Uh, good afternoon from London. That was our friend Neil Thomas joining us down the line from Washington, D.C. Uh, next up on The Briefing, let's cross over to our Isabella Jewell, who's standing by with the day's other news headlines.
3: Thanks, Tom. Houthi rebels based in Yemen have claimed responsibility for an attack on a commercial tanker, the latest strike by the Iran-backed group in response to Israel's offensive in Gaza. The Norwegian-owned ship was struck by a missile late on Monday while travelling between the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington to meet with Joe Biden and senior Republicans after urging the US to continue supporting Kyiv in its war with Russia. GOP lawmakers have refused to back the $61 billion aid package for Ukraine unless the president approves stricter controls on the country's southern border. South Africa plans to boost its nuclear capacity in a bid to tackle rolling blackouts of up to 10 hours. The country's electricity minister said Pretoria will invite bids for an extra 2,500 megawatts of nuclear power. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom.
0: Thanks very much, Isabella. Now, the United Nations COP28 Climate Summit in Dubai is scheduled to wrap up today, but hopes of a shared agreement were thrown into some doubt yesterday when references to phasing out fossil fuels were removed from a draft document, sparking fury from the EU, many small island countries and many others. They blame Saudi Arabia and other oil-rich states who've pushed for softer language on oil, gas and coal. The United Nations Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, spoke about the issue at a press conference. A central
1: aspect, in my opinion, of the success of the COP would be for the COP to reach a consensus on the need to phase out fossil fuels in line with a time framework that is in line with the 1.5 degree limit. That doesn't mean that all countries must phase out fossil fuels at the same time.
0: UN Chief Antonio Guterres speaking earlier. Well, Akshat Ratti is a Bloomberg climate reporter and author and is joining us now on the line from COP28 in Dubai. Good afternoon, Akshat. Tell us um, what's on the agenda and what's the latest today? I guess we perhaps could have seen the specific detail of this area of tension coming, maybe.
4: Yeah, I suppose we could have. But uh, the way it was playing out, there was clearly a real momentum. Um, We hear about 80% of the uh, countries uh, sitting here are agreed on language around phasing out of fossil fuels. But this fight always happens with fossil fuel producers. Um, And we are in that moment right now. I mean, officially, the meeting was supposed to end today. uh, And journalists here are in a waiting game. We are actually waiting for the next... Text of the draft to come after the fights that happened and whether the presidency is able to come to a place where consensus will happen. And now, just to remind people, over here at COP28, the only way decisions get made are by consensus. Any country can hold the consensus back.
0: Well, this is it. And perhaps we should be unsurprised uh, that Saudi Arabia, as an example, I mentioned resisting that language around the phase out of fossil fuels. But just in terms of where you are, uh, actually, the UAE, what what have they had to say? Because obviously, there was controversy even before COP28 got started, that the sort of chairmanship was sat with uh, somebody who was running uh, the the, uh, local uh, sort of fossil fuel interests. And UAE is a member of uh, the uh, the OPEC grouping, have they said anything that surprised you?
4: Well, the presidency of any COP, even though it might be in a fossil fuel country, uh, has to be neutral. It has to listen to all parties and figure out how to bring them to consensus. So going into the uh, conversation, there was clearly momentum on phase-out language. The first draft that we got uh, had phase-out of fossil fuels as one of the options, It's only the most recent draft, which is now that we're coming to the close of the meeting, that things have gone
2: uh,
4: quite uh, differently as people were expecting. Uh, In terms of uh, progress, look, phasing out of fossil fuels is being held as the one thing that'll determine success or or failure. But of course, there are a number of other things that need to be signed off, and they're also quite important. There's supposed to be a global goal on adaptation. What do you do to help countries adapt to the warming that's already in place, and that's coming their way. There are lots of actually quite small, simple, cheap things that you can do to make their lives better and, in fact, make uh, their lives better than would have been even without climate change. Um, That goal is also not being agreed yet. There's a whole discussion around carbon markets, which could enable more transfer of money from rich countries to developing countries. That's being held back. So currently, the mood is quite dour. Everybody is just waiting... uh, to see what the presidency puts forward.
0: Well, I guess that's the question then, actually. How long do we expect this to go on for? And is there a risk that we miss a critical opportunity to make at least some moves, maybe in some of these other um, attendant areas you've just mentioned, uh, because of this big focus on the language around the the, the phase-out? Or do you think that despite the sombre mood, there's, an I don't know, enough uh, collective will, momentum to
4: drag something across the line? So... There is no real deadline. This uh, meeting as it runs is only ended when there is either a consensus or the parties walk away, uh, which would say they do not want, they do not agree. Uh, And so as far as we've heard from the European Union, they're in it, they said we have time, we'll be here till we get a consensus. Uh, So there's clearly a desire for parties to come to a consensus. Now, what would progress look like uh, if it doesn't happen? Well, there have been a few things that have changed. So a fund called the Loss and Damage Fund, which is where developed countries pay developing countries for the damages that are going to be caused by climate impacts. That was agreed upon. About $750 million were put into it. Um, there has been a few other private sector announcements that happen outside of this uh, government negotiation party that, you know, could add up into the tens of billions of dollars for uh deploying many of the climate solutions that we know, wind, solar batteries, but in developing countries where there isn't enough cash. But those are really sideshows. This core document that 200 countries have to agree on really will determine whether we're going to keep this target of 1.5C alive or not. Uh, One of the island nation countries group said yesterday, you don't want this COP to be the COP that kills 1.5 degrees Celsius.
0: Akshat Ratti from Bloomberg in Dubai, uh, thanks for being with us. I hope you've got a comfy chair, maybe a thermos. Sounds like you could be sat there waiting for some time. Thanks for joining us here on The Briefing. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio with me, Tom Edwards. Now, the European Union's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, has proposed block-wide sanctions on Israeli settlers involved in violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. Attacks in the Palestinian territory have surged since war broke out between Hamas and Israel in October. Borrell added that he would also set out a fresh set of sanctions on Hamas, which is already categorised as a terrorist organisation by the bloc. Well, Reem Montaz is a consultant research fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and I'm delighted to say, She joins us now on the line from Paris. Good afternoon, Reem. Um, The union has struggled really to present a unified front on the conflict in broad terms. Uh, Should we, can we expect these proposals to meet uh, much internal resistance from within the bloc?
5: Thank you for having me, first of all. And second, I think you uh, are right to point out the divisions that we have seen among European Union member states since the beginning of this round of conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Um, It has been a a very difficult uh, time to keep the unity among uh, sort of European member states. But I will point out that they did agree to designate uh, two uh, Hamas um, uh, military leaders a couple of weeks ago and designate them as, as terrorists. So they have been able to do some things in a very uh, contained way. Now, whether they will be able to get uh, th- what is needed in order to designate you know, uh, Israeli settlers on a, a no-fly zone or ban them from basically getting visas, that is going to be much more difficult, because as we know, the EU is basically divided into three camps. You have a camp that is um, very solidly in support of Israel, and that camp is led, of course, by Germany, given the historic context and the historic responsibility that Germany still feels related to the Holocaust. You have Austria, you have Hungary, you have other countries like the Netherlands in that, in that category. And then on the other end, you have uh, a group of countries that are very much in support of Palestinians, not Hamas, but of course, Palestinians um, and, and their rights. And we're seeing uh, countries that have become more and more vocal, like Belgium, like Ireland, but also France is somewhat, sometimes put in that category. And then you have a middle ground of countries that don't really have a very strong position on either side um, and that frankly feel like all of this is a distraction from the real big issue, uh, an existential issue for the EU, which is Ukraine. And these countries, of course, are mainly the Baltic states and the Eastern Europeans. And, and, you know, this is in, in broad strokes.
0: Well, no, and I think those broad strokes are are interesting and relevant. But Reem, they prompt me to ask a question, which is, you know, we can look, as you said, there was interesting calls last week from a couple of countries you mentioned, Belgians, Ireland, I think Spain, Malta as well, calling for discussions of a ceasefire in Gaza. And I guess that's prompted some people to say, well, you know, are we seeing a shift, even a small shift in, in sort of European policy, if you like? But from your opening remarks, one can't really describe European policy coming on this question because it is so divisive and the the views of the bloc are so fragmentary.
5: You are absolutely right. I mean, if you were to ask me point blank, what is the European position? I would have a very hard time telling you, you know, without making like a 10 minute answer. Right. Without giving you a 10 minute answer. Um, on the ceasefire, uh, this has been a running issue since uh, the beginning of the Israeli response to the October seventh Hamas attack against uh, against Israel. Um, there has been uh, a tug of war, so to say, excuse the pun, uh, between those who want an immediate ceasefire and those who think that only a humanitarian truce is the most that one should ask of Israel, because Israel needs to be allowed to. Uh, If not uh, completely destroy Hamas militarily, at least deal it a a really, a body blow that can knock it out of uh, commission. Um, I will say that the longer this war lasts, the more devastation we see in Gaza, the more the UN uh, uses uh, unprecedented words to describe the situation, the humanitarian situation for the civilians in Gaza, uh, in in the sense that they have been saying, the UN agencies, that their own uh, storage rooms, their own facilities are being targeted by the Israeli military, that the humanitarian situation is unlike anything they've seen, even in places like Yemen in Syria, where they say that some adults are going as long as three days without being able to feed themselves so that they can give whatever little food they can find to the children that they can have. Talking about the start of the spread of diseases because of the completely unsanitary conditions that exist, where you have tens of thousands of people crammed onto basically Uh, deserted beaches with something like 10 or 15 toilets. I mean, it's just unimaginable. So the longer this is going to go on, especially given that Israel is having a hard time uh, showing concrete results and concrete damage to hamas militarily the the more you're going to start hearing a calls for a ceasefire among europeans because do not forget the europeans are very very worried about a spillover effect in their domestic politics, given their Muslim immigrant populations, but also given the threat of a new wave of refugees being pushed out of Gaza onto boats because Egypt does not want to open its border. And you've had Israeli government officials say, well, it's easy. The Gazans can just get on boats and go to Europe. You know, Cyprus is just across the Mediterranean. Uh, and, and that is alarming European countries as well.
0: Reem, always uh, great to hear from you. Thanks for your time today. That was Reem Momtaz from the IISS in Paris. You're listening to The Briefing here on Monaco Radio. Helsinki is the city best prepared for future developments in urban mobility, according to new analysis. The management consulting firm Oliver Wyman, together with the University of California at Berkeley, has published its annual Urban Mobility Readiness Index. The survey assesses public transport and sustainable mobility in 65 global cities. Well I'm delighted to say Guillaume Thibault partner at Oliver Wyman joins us now on the line from Paris. Um good afternoon to you Guillaume. Tell us uh, Helsinki's top of the tree um why is it number 1 in your rankings?
6: Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Indeed it's uh, the fifth year Oliver Wyman together with uh, UC Berkeley uh, publishes this uh, study and this year Elsinkey is uh, on the top. Um, Elsinkey actually uh, consistently delivers over all the key dimensions of our index, which are namely the capacity of a municipality uh, to have and to embrace a strong uh, and strategic vision for the, for the sector. Number two, to be clear on the key uh, infrastructures which are needed uh, to achieve this, uh, this vision, Number three, to bridge together the private and the public sector to deliver uh, efficient uh, solutions uh, towards this infrastructure. And fourth, to make uh, together the condition for a proper uh, research and education and technology uh, ecosystem to, uh, to deliver. Helsinki, we, we all know it uh, is uh, very strong on active mobility, uh, both for cyclists and, and pedestrians. And it's also a norm to a diverse and multimodal public transit network uh, with a very high level of affordability and station densities. and all of this reason makes for this uh, success uh, this year.
0: Well, absolutely. And there are a number of other big European cities in the top 10. They're rather overrepresented, aren't they, Uh, Guillaume? We have Amsterdam, uh, Stockholm, Zurich, of course. But there are others. We have San Francisco, uh, Singapore. Is it possible to extrapolate, Guillaume, what the, the, the leading cities, what the top 10 cities have in common?
6: It's, uh, it's pretty difficult to, to share some common patterns because, actually, there are very strong uh, geographic uh, archetypes that we can find. For sure, the European can uh, leverage on uh, a very positive background and heritage, which is to be uh, very dense uh, cities characterized by uh, multi-mixed-use um, uh, districts and where uh, the capacity to uh, launch active mobility solution, public uh, network transit, is uh, in a way uh, simplified. In the US, as we know, uh, cities were designed uh, for cars, which is making it more complex uh, to develop uh, sustainable and profitable public uh, transit system even if uh, there are some big efforts in in those cities to to improve in this uh, dimension. And in Asia, uh, what we see is uh, cities uh, experiencing fast growth rates in their population, uh, building on often very powerful public transit system. Uh, Hong Kong, for example, is number one again this year uh, for the quality of uh, its uh, metro and, and public transport. And those cities can leverage on massive investments uh, as they expand in terms of uh, of size and and shape uh, to deliver on uh, the future autonomous electric uh, systems which will also make tomorrow the competitiveness of uh, those cities.
0: Uh, Guillaume I think I'm right in saying this is the fifth year of the index Um, and to sort of mark that uh, specific uh, landmark you've made some tailored recommendations for each city Um, and I just wonder what sort of uh, reception what kind of reaction you you tend to get and again at the risk of asking the impossible can you can you distill those recommendations down to provide one key lesson for, for cities wherever they might be?
6: I think one of the key uh, challenges uh, cities are are trying to address now is really about sustainability. For sure, uh, the COVID-19 crisis has highlighted the vulnerabilities of uh, our economies, but also of cities uh, through external shocks. And today, 90% of uh, cities feel uh, they are directly exposed to uh, global warming. So clearly managing this challenge in a context of uh, space scarcity is probably uh, one of the key uh, theme. Uh, and all cities are working hard to make a better use of a scarce uh, land, uh, developing, for example, uh, monetization techniques uh, to make sure that the usage of uh, the public infrastructure is probably recognized, and this is uh, one of the reasons for the expansion of urban tolls in Asian and also in European cities. Uh, We also see a growing number of infrastructures which are fully flexible, accommodating different types of uh, of vehicles, and many efforts uh, to reduce uh, the share of uh, private cars in the overall uh, distribution, uh, ratio in order to improve once again uh, the, the the footprint which is taken by uh, by cars and vehicles in uh, in this uh, landscape.
0: Guillaume but- uh, thanks for being with us uh, as always and congratulations on the on the report it's always super interesting it's reassuring to see that there's a focus on things like systems efficiency rather than waiting for flying cars and all, all the rest of it um, but it's great stuff uh, Guillaume Thibault thanks for being with us on the briefing. Well, finally on today's programme, we're going to take a quick look at some of the big stories in fashion. Monocle's fashion editor is here with me in the studio, Natalie Tudosi. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thank um, you. And where shall we start today? With a little bit of Le Bon Marché?
1: I think that's a great place to start. It's it's an exciting story. Sarah Andelman, who is the great founder of the Parisian boutique Colette, um, which it sadly closed a few years ago, but it it used to be one of the most famous boutiques in the world. And now she is returning. She's teaming up with Le Bon Marché on this um, exhibition, which will be called Mise en Page, uh, on page in, in English. And as the title suggests, it will be all about books, Uh, There will be books, but also book-related products, whatever that means. And there will also be merchandise from bookstores all around the world, like The Strand in New York, which is really famous, and a lot of collaborations. And given Sarah's kind of knack for unexpected collaborations, and also she was speaking about now literature and fashion being very much in the zeitgeist but also timeless and referring to a lot of recent projects by designers filming their shops in libraries uh, teaming up with bookstores so I think it will be really interesting and she really can capture the zeitgeist so it will be something worth uh, visiting next year in Paris
0: Absolutely and if there's great print and great retail it's safe to assume that Monica will be there or thereabouts do you know what I mean it's, this is, these are things we Absolutely, are equally Yes. Um, now What about here, on this side of the channel? Um, I gather there was a big event in London from Hermes. um, Tell me what was being discussed or exhibited or (laughs) demonstrated there, Natalie.
1: A very fun event last week. Uh, Hermès uh, came over to London and and took us to Acton in West London, which was a not little bit I, unexpected. I was expecting to say <laughs> exactly. So it was this big industrial space. You kind of walked into, like dark, no lighting, you didn't know what to expect. But once you went in, it it was an an incredible space. They, They, the idea was to celebrate their silk scarves and they teamed up with artists and design studios in London to create different installations inspired by the scarf. So you had everything from this amphitheater-like stage, uh, sand dunes, giant versions of the scarves, all inspired by the colors, like you, the patterns, and then just generally the world of Hermès. There were performances by, um, I think it was a Portuguese ballet dancer, the Hackney-based musician Hope, who had a scarf kind of just tied around his arm. And it was just a really nice get-together, but also... Really interesting to see that a brand can really get people excited, create, get a community together without necessarily launching something new and mm. uh, putting new stuff out there, which is fashion's usual obsession. It's the scarf is such a timeless um, design and, and and item, but there's still so much interest and appetite for it.
0: Well, again, timeless utility. These are also things we like. I do wonder though. Do you think they said we just need lots of action? And maybe someone spelt it wrong and they went up in Acton. Who, who knows? <laughs> who, who knows why?
2: But it maybe it's a great thing
1: event. new place to be.
0: You <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
4: um,
0: there, there are other West London locations available. Okay. Um, let's quickly, because the clock is against us, Natalie, um, a quick retail roundup. We talked about retail before. Um, destination shopping, uh, physical retail being important. And there's a few exciting openings and other things that have caught your eye.
1: Definitely. I think just looking at the industry calendar the past few weeks, there's been so many openings. Saint Laurent just opened its first, uh, its biggest store in, in Paris yet. Gucci has just renovated its flagship in Milan and it's bigger and better. Here in London, the brand Totem um, opened its uh, a new flagship on Mount Street. Um, in our December-January issue, actually we have a, a big roundup of, of favorite boutiques as well from VisVim in Japan which opened with queues to um, independent boutiques like beige in paris which have gone bigger as well so there's really a lot of investment in in physical shops brands especially are are putting their money in renovating their boutiques going bigger and and people are back into back in in the boutiques and then wanting to try things on and socialize so i think it's it's a really exciting development and we'll be seeing a lot more of it in the new
0: year uh, and people can keep across your views, news and insights, uh, as you said, Natalie, of course, in the pages of the magazine, but in the Monocle Minute and here on the radio from time to time.
1: Absolutely. We like yeah. it when you pop into the studio to chat I'm always happy us. to come and chat to you. Uh,
0: Natalie, thanks so much. That's uh, Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Teodosi, joining us here on The Briefing. And that is all we have time for. On today's programme, which was expertly produced, as ever, by Lillian Fawcett and Monica Lillis, our studio manager was Callum McLean. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Do be sure, in the meanwhile, to join Andrew Muller and friends, 1900 CET, 1800 here in London, lunchtime on the eastern seaboard across the US for Tuesday's edition of The Daily a little later today. But that's all from me, Tom Edwards. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.